Well, do turn your Bibles to John chapter 13. It's a great chapter. It's one that, uh, that I've grown to love over the years. In fact, this section of John's gospel from here to the end of 17 is one of the most precious parts of Scripture. Uh, yet, as the, the section begins and unfolds, we find Jesus doing something bizarre. don't know if you've ever had the experience of observing somebody do something that you, you really find quite bizarre and inexplicable. You don't know why they're doing it, and you wish you knew what was on their mind. Perhaps you even turn to someone and you, you ask them the question, what was he thinking? If only you knew what they were thinking, it would have put some meaning, made sense of what was going on. Well, in many ways, that's what's happening here in this chapter as we see Jesus doing something which to the eyes of the disciples would have been bizarre in the highest degree. Let me fill you in with what uh, this little section is. It's part of the prologue to Jesus' official final farewell to his covenant people, the people he'd chosen out of the world. They're described as his own, that is his own people distinct from the world of around and now, even at this stage already in chapter 12, the Jewish people have now become just one of the nations, one of the the categories of the world because they have rejected their Messiah. And so he turns to his own, uh, whom he had chosen out of the world. And we saw last time in chapter 13, that it begins with what Jesus knew. It goes on to tell us what Jesus did and then what Jesus said to the disciples. Uh, Let me recap in the first part because it puts it in its context and begins to make sense of what's going on in this action of washing the feet that Jesus gets round to. It was the Passover. That's what it says, that the Passover, which was the beginning of the national life of Israel was also to be the last Passover in the sense that what it meant and what it signified was about to be fulfilled. Already the authorities have decided, that is the religious authorities, that in order to avert the wrath of Rome, that one man must die for the people. That was a political move on their part, but in fact we know because we have a kind of God's eye view of the events, we know that this was part of God's plan. In fact, the idea of the plan of God is captured in the use of that expression, the hour that is used. There in verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. That hour which had been prepared, planned, plotted by the Father and the Son and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. That hour of Passover in which the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that had been chosen before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God would die to take away the sin of the world. In fact, we see that John in his gospel makes that the keynote. Going back to chapter 1, this has been a prevailing idea as John the Baptist, another John, identifies Jesus in these very terms. Behold the Lamb of God 
Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The same John, when he's writing his book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, last book in the Bible, uses this expression about the Lamb of God over 28 times. Jesus is the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, he is worshipped as the slain Lamb who has come back to life. He has been sacrificed by a, a bloody, violent, sacrificial death. And by doing so, he has purchased people for God. We sung about being bought by our Redeemer. And Jesus is our Redeemer. And Paul makes it absolutely clear for us what's going on when he says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, the Messiah, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Now that's the background then painted by the apostle in the opening words. And then we come to the heart of the section we're looking at today. We're told uh, here as we find Jesus getting up from supper, laying aside his outer garments, taking up a towel, tying it round his waist. Here we find Jesus taking the form of a servant. Jesus taking the form of a servant. He moves from his place to the lowest place. That's the movement of the drama as it unfolds. And I want you to keep your eyes on the text here because I want you to notice how it all plays out as we read the text. Did you notice how we began this evening in verse 3? Jesus, knowing that he had come from God, I'm abbreviating, rose from supper. And on rising from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, the badge of the servant, he tied it round his waist. Now the key words there that you need to have in your mind to grasp this, what's going on here, are these words, knowing, rising, laying aside, taking. It's all very deliberate. It's all very intentional. It's unnecessary. No one is expecting Jesus to do this. It's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary act of humility. And I want you to notice that it is, first of all, driven by love. It's an act of self-giving. Because we're told there at the end of verse 1 that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And whatever he's doing in this action, he is demonstrating his love for his own. Now, we live in a world that is preoccupied with love. As we would understand, it seems to be that our society is on a corporate quest to find true love. Hence, our preoccupation with books and the internet and movies and magazines. And often, of course, our view of love is is manipulated by the media, and it emerges as a kind of narcissistic, self-focused, manipulative kind of thing. Uh, there's this sense that uh, it's what I'm getting out of it will determine the kind of relationship that we have with someone else. And yet, true love, and we know this, not just in a Christian point of view, but I think from the world, true love recognizes that it must pursue the needs of the beloved first and delight, delight to serve the beloved in whatever way 
it can. Husbands, you're supposed to pursue the needs of your wife above your own. Your delight should be to serve your wife in whatever way you can. Sacrificing yourself, giving yourself, dying for her, dying to your own ambitions, dying to your own will, dying to your own comfort, dying to yourself in order that you serve your wife. That's what true love is like. And in the Bible, that love is seen in the actions of Jesus here. His action here is driven by love. And it's placed, do you notice, against the stark background of Judas Iscariot in verse 2. We didn't spend time with this last time, so we'll go over it a little bit. This evening during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, even Jesus, what he knows here, is governed by this contrasting thing that's going on Judas's betrayal, which is satanically inspired apparently, but was also Satan, uh, Judas's own choice and his own responsibility. Because what had happened is that Satan had found a foothold in Judas's heart, in his love of money, we're told later, in his selfish ambition, in the daily compromises that he was making because we discover that he had been steadily, steadily salting money away from the finances and stacking it up for himself. And those little compromises day by day had opened a fissure in his soul and Satan has put a lever in there and has leverage on the heart of Judas Iscariot. You see, the heart is the seat of the will and a heart surrendered to the devil, wants what the devil wants. And the devil wanted Jesus dead. And as Judas Iscariot gave up more of himself and his own identity to the devil, he wants Jesus dead. But Jesus' love stands, do you notice, in stark contrast to Judas's betrayal. His love is not contingent on the response of the beloved. He does not say to the beloved, look, if you measure up, I'll love you. If you tidy the house so that when I come home, it's all nice and clean and tidy, I'll love you. If you do this, that, or the other thing, then I'll love you. Love is not contingent on what the other does. This love, this love, this godlike love, arises by spontaneous generation within the heart of Jesus. And we're never given an explanation for the love of God for us in the Bible. He loves us because He loves us. He loves us because He chooses to love us. I may not be lovable, but He chooses to love me. That's the heart of it. And the measure of God's love is not our feelings about God or His feelings towards us or our heart or our record or our present behavior or our or anything else, it is His cross. God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were, what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, Thou hast taught me, it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this transport, all divine. In a love that cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine.
A believer is able to say that. It's an act of self-giving. It's an act of self-awareness. In John's preface to the account, he says this. Look again, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. At the moment he was performing the action, you see what was on his mind. Do you see? Jesus is uniquely, clearly aware of his status. He, he approaches this action, we're being told, in the self-conscious confidence that the Father has put all things into his hands. He is not a victim of circumstances. He is in charge of circumstances. Everything is in his hands. He knows his true position. He knows his true status. He knows that he has come from God. John, at the beginning, in chapter 1, had begun, do you remember, talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Taking us right back to the beginning of the Bible. When God speaks, let there be. In the beginning was the Word. And he tells us the Word was with God. He has his own identity. He has been face to face with God from all eternity. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is aware, clearly aware, of His divine relationship with His Father. But the third thing about Jesus taking the form of a servant is this, that He this is an act of self-humiliation. Jesus, knowing he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now notice the deliberate actions here. Laid aside his outer garments, his nice clothing, taking the towel, the badge of the slave, and tying it around his waist. Do you see how deliberate, calculated intention there is here for Jesus to take the servant's place. What is he doing? He's taking on something that was not his natural. What was his natural pose? His natural pose was to be the rabbi. He's the teacher. He's the one who goes around and he is talking to 10,000 people. You know, the, 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 the men and women and children who gathered around to hear him. He's in the temple and he's talking to the theologians. That's his normal milieu. That's where you normally find Jesus. The crowds pushing against him, trying to get healed. So he does something here that he'd never done before, as far as we know. He puts on the towel, the towel, the badge of the slave. And he knew what he was doing. He, he is adopting the stance of a menial. Do you know, even a non-Jewish slave wasn't allowed to do this. It was a position looked down on by both Jew and Gentile. Other rabbis may have talked blandly about humility within limits, but Jesus' humility knows no limits. And theologically, it's striking. He, he is striking them between the eyes with this. Later on, they would understand what was going on here. Isaiah, the prophet, had described the coming Messiah and used grandiose terms to describe the coming Messiah. He would be a king in the line of David. He would be a divine king with divine titles, receiving divine honors from God and from men. 
And the whole world would be full of His glory, this coming Messiah. And as Isaiah goes on describing the coming of this great one, when it comes down to brass tacks at the end of Isaiah, we discover that He comes when He arrives. As what? The servant. The servant of the Lord. He is Lord and servant. It's a contradiction. It seems that, that it jolts the mind. How can he be both the Lord God who is holding the universe in place and a servant on his knees with a bowl of water washing the dirty feet of these disciples, doing the servant's task? That's what we need to see as we look at this. That's the context in which it's placed, knowing that he had come from God. What does he do? He takes off his outer clothes. He pours water in the basin. He puts on the badge of the servant. Now here is God's anointed then. The only son of God who shares the Father's glory, leaving his place to come to our place. I want you to notice that he does not cease to be what he was. He does not stop ever being God. The the Son of God in human flesh did not stop ruling the universe and holding it up by the word of his power. He did not give up being God. Some liberal theologians have argued that Jesus gave up his deity in order to take on humanity. B.B. Warfield refuted that view by pointing out that God is immutable. God cannot stop being God. And the Son of God could not stop being the Son of God when He became incarnate. It was not who He was that He gave up. It was not His deity that He laid aside. It was His outer garments. It was the manifestation of His deity. It was the dignity of His deity that He gave, that He put aside. Philippians 2 which we looked at in preparation for understanding both this and Isaiah. In Philippians 2, we, we, we read those words which read literally in the Greek himself, he emptied, taking. In other words, Jesus emptied himself by taking, not by losing, by taking on something he did not have before. That's what we see him doing here in this action. He lays aside his outer garments and he takes what he did not have before. He puts on himself the badge of the servant. Paul helps to explain what's going on here. He knew he had come from God and was going to God. And Paul reminds us, he puts it like this, he who was in the form of God, he who did not think equality with God something to be grasped, it was already his, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in likeness as a man. Do you see, he is laying aside the prerogatives, in a sense, as the second person of the Trinity for the sake of his own. His inner nature, he shares a divine nature as well as a human nature in the one person of the Son. But he is showing us in this action something about the divine nature, because Jesus is one person. He is not schizophrenic. So the human nature of Jesus mirrors in a human form the divine nature of Jesus. 
And as you see Jesus now acting as the lowest servant, washing the feet of these people, you see into the heart of the nature of God Himself. You see that God is not self-centered or self-absorbed. That God is love. And as Donald MacLeod puts it, as love, God is pure altruism. Looking not on or at his own things, but at the things of others. This shakes up our view of God. You may have an idea of God, that God is, if God exists, God is so big, and he's so remote, and he's so powerful, that he must be as arrogant as you would be if you had that kind of power. What kind of God is this that we see in the Bible who is not afraid to be in the minority among human beings with his people? A God who is not ashamed to appear weak and even foolish in the eyes of the world. A God who has ordained, for example, that the message that's preached is the message of a crucified Christ and that that message is brought through weak Human beings who articulate it and preach it. The folly of preaching. What kind of God is this? Willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world. Willing to put himself in harm's way. Willing to suffer humiliation and betrayal and injustice and shame and death. The death of the cross. It kind of shatters that view we have sometimes of God. That God is just like us. Only on steroids. No, he is nothing like us. For when we see Jesus at his weakest and saddest, he is in fact crushing the head of the serpent. He is binding up the strong man that has taken hold of our world. He is driving out the prince of this world. He is destroying death. And he's putting spiritual powers to an open shame. Here is Jesus taking the form of a servant. He is illustrating this massive divine movement from glory to ignominy, from exaltation to humiliation. He's taking the form of a servant. Secondly, we find Jesus performing the work of a servant. Again, knowing his divine origin and purpose, fully conscious of his deity, knowing the hour had come, having loved his own who were in the world, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God. Wonderful statement of his deity. Knowing that he sat at the same table as his Father in heaven, fully conscious of who he was, he takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around him, and proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. Now that would have been shocking. I said that earlier, I repeat it. What is the social significance of washing the feet? In the first century, foot washing was a necessary evil. It was a regular chore that you had to do because just by brushing your teeth or washing your hair or, or whatever, whatever it is you have to do. Because in those days, you went around the streets in open sandals. You didn't wear socks. If you wear socks today, you're just weird. If you're wearing sandals, it's a, it's a, it is a sartorial no-no. I'm just saying that, just in case. 
They, they wore open sandals, and as they walked the dirty streets, the dirt roads, their feet would become caked with sweaty grime. And so, if you were going out for dinner, you could have a bath before you left, but by the time you got to the person's house, your feet would be this messy, kind of sweaty kind of way. And if you were going to a really posh house, and they had lots of servants, then the lowest servants, especially if they were foreigners, would be given the job of washing the guests' feet before they went in. And by the way, that was necessary because of the way in which you ate. You ate with your elbow nearest the table and your feet on a kind of couch moving away from the table. So the servants going around and serving you the wine at your table had to bypass your feet. You really did not want them stinking too much. Uh, in that kind of context. So there was all kinds of social reasons for doing it. And here is Jesus, you see, doing something which would have been unthinkable for somebody of his social status. Unthinkable. It would have been, an, it would have been socially it would have been an incomprehensible contradiction of their relationship with Jesus. They were the disciples. He was the rabbi. But here is the point. He wasn't just the rabbi. He's just demonstrated to them, which they would understand later, that he is God with skin on. Here's the rub. God with skin on sees nothing ungodlike about washing the disciples' feet. Isn't that amazing? Here is Jesus, and he wants to do, in the words of a hymn, he wants to do something that is matchless, godlike, and divine. And what does he do? He washes their feet. Now, this is important. He knew he had come from God and was returning to God. And in this intervening period, he makes himself a servant. Now, that's important to state. It's important to state for theological reasons so that you have this clear in your head. And you may wonder how we get so much theology out of this. It's because it's, it's there, latent in the text. Subordination was not Jesus' natural state before he came into the world. He was rich before he became poor. He was God, the Word, before he took flesh. He was equal with God before becoming a servant. He had come from God before he washed their feet. He was with God in the beginning. Always with God in the beginning. Now this points us, this action of Jesus points us obliquely to what is quite explicit throughout the Scripture and will become even clearer in the, in the passages to come in John's Gospel. The fact that from eternity, in light of foreseen human sin, a specific agreement existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that they should exalt each other through the Son's Humiliation, submission, and work on earth. It's called in Latin the Pactum Salutis, 
the covenant of redemption. And it lies in the background behind so much of the language of John's gospel about the Father sending the Son of Jesus, saying he'd come in order to do the Father's will, and of Jesus giving himself in order to win and save particular persons for himself. Here is Jesus taking the form of a servant and performing the work of a servant. How does he do it? He takes the servant's place. Um, we don't have time. Right, just let me get my phone here. I'll answer my emails. But apart from it, I want to see the time. That's why I have it here, in case you were wondering. I don't want to, I don't want to keep you up too late. But Luke tells us something that John doesn't mention, and I think he doesn't mention it because he doesn't want to take away from the power of the symbolism here. But we know that earlier that evening, earlier that evening, as they were getting to that room to have their last supper together, we know what was going on among the disciples. Do you remember what was going on? A dispute arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Can you imagine it? Which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus tore strips off them. You remember? And he said in, he said in Luke 22 verse 27. Who is the greater? One who reclines at the table? Or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you. As the one that serves. And that's the model by the way for all ministers and elders. It's the model for every believer. I'm among you as the one who serves. So there was an issue about service that evening. And here is Jesus. And he puts on the badge of the servant. And he's acting this way as very God. Having taken on our humanity, he who was rich for our sakes became poor. Poor by his incarnation. Poor by his rejection of his people. Poor by the washing of their feet. Poor through his arrest and trial and crucifixion and burial. He is taking the servant's place. And he's doing the servant's work. He poured water into a basin. Isaiah, Isaiah spoke about the servant in these terms. He poured out his life to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Now we know. We won't notice this in John's gospel. John is leaning heavily on Isaiah's language. He's been quoting him right, left, and center. He's just been quoting from chapter 53. And that section, this verse comes out of 53. It's one, one of the principles, by the way, of Bible study, that if one verse or part of a verse is quoted by the New Testament, it intends you to go back to the Old Testament and read what was written there in its full context. So if you forget the chapter division, which wasn't there in the beginning, he's just quoted Isaiah 53. This is happening off the back of Isaiah 53. You're meant to see Jesus as the servant about whom Isaiah speaks. And here he is, and he's pouring out this water. Isaiah says, the servant will pour out his life to death and will be numbered with the transgressors. And why will he do that? So that he could sprinkle many nations, Isaiah says in chapter 52. The central part of the servant's work 
was to pour out his life to death in order that he might apply a cleansing ministry to men and women whom he would serve with salvation. That's the background to this action. Alan Richardson, one of the great theologians, put it like this. This action foreshadows the cross. He pours out his life to death in order that he might wash their feet. In fact, that very evening, and we don't know whether this, this may, may have happened before the event of taking the Passover, which John doesn't repeat because he knows it's in the other Gospels by the time he's writing his. But at the supper, later on that evening, Jesus would take the cup and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He poured out his life. Why? Isaiah tells us he was bearing the sins of many. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, so that we might be healed. Pouring out his life so that we would be cleansed and washed clean from our sin. Jesus performing the work of a servant. Jesus taking the form of a servant. And then lastly... Jesus completing the task of the servant. As he washed his disciples, just as he would cleanse his people from their sin, we're told in verse 11 that when he had finished, look at that, let's look at that a bit more closely, shall we? When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. What you don't see there is that the text says he had finished. It's a form of the same word that's used later in John when he cries from the cross, finished. When he had finished the work of procuring their cleansing, he sat down. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 uses this very same image, puts it all together for us. After he had provide, provided purification, that is washing, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Here is Jesus. You see the whole of his saving career. He had been talking about this all the time. He had been speaking about this to his disciples in chapter 10 of John's gospel. For, for this reason, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. Or Paul, for example, again in that passage in Philippians that we looked at some weeks ago. Here is the, the one who is equal with God, one who is by very nature God, taking the form of a servant. There he is, rising from his place putting on the badge of the servant, stooping down to do the servant's job. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There he is, pouring out his life to death, shedding his blood that will wash away our sin. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Here he is, returning to his own place, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow. 
He had come from God and was going to God, you see. He's leaving his place and he returns to his place. And there is the whole sweep of his saving career from the beginning to the end. He has come and he has gone. And then captured in there is the whole sweep of the redemption that Christ has done. That's what it means back in verse 2 when it says, He showed them the full extent of His love in this action. They didn't see that then. Later they came to know, because they came to know by the Spirit what was on Jesus' mind when He performed the action. We get to look at this bizarre event and we now see it through Jesus' eyes. He showed them the full extent of his love. He who was rich beyond all telling, all for love's sake, becameth poor. I want to commend to you tonight, if you're not a Christian, I want to commend my Lord Jesus to you. I've known him and loved him since I was a little boy. And he's never failed me or forsaken me. And he's as real and as precious and as tender and as loving a friend as you could ever find. And he has served me with salvation. And he has consistently applied to my life the cleansing that his blood affords. And I commend him to you. I've known him now for decades. I commend him to you. Come to know him. And your soul will be ravished by his love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your son, our lovely savior, the Lord Jesus, came from heaven's glory to this fallen, broken world, took on our humanity, had to go through the routine of everyday life like we do, walking, eating, drinking, making friends, losing friends, being betrayed by someone close to him, being put to death, crucified, dead, and buried. Thank you that he did that for his people. We pray tonight that if we don't have the assurance that we belong to his people, that you'd open our hearts to him, that we might embrace him for ourselves, we pray in his strong name. Amen.